Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. We Have Ways of Making You Talk presents The Cauldron by Zeno, read by Al Murray. Chapter 20. As Blake moved in a stumbling run across the open gardens towards the houses held by Gorman, facing west to Arnhem, he was conscious that his thoughts were as uncoordinated as his limbs, and he wondered vaguely whether it was the benzedrine or simply tiredness which made his mind dart from matters of importance to trivialities. The back of his neck felt cold and damp, devoid of feeling, anaesthetised. He felt it must stand out like a bullseye on his body, a target for the Germans he was convinced had infiltrated into one of the houses between his own and those held by the remnants of three platoon, who had fallen back into them after being burned out of their new positions soon after dawn. He closed his eyes for a second as he lumbered forward. Tripping on a briar, he opened them again and forced himself to run faster. Sluggish ripples of panic rolled out from the area of his stomach, so tangible that he felt them ease between his clothing and his skin like paper knives opening envelopes. He mumbled as he ran. If they were going to shoot, for Christ's sake, let them shoot quickly. He almost wanted them to, to get the whole bloody useless mess over and done with. He didn't even know what it was about anymore, and he was beginning not to care. He blundered awkwardly through a rickety gate, bruising himself on a post. He was cursing as he went through the back door of a house and the curses were interspersed with low sobs of exhaustion. The repetitive sounds breaking out of his mouth like bleeps of steam from a valve and the sudden hurt in his hip became additional fuel heaped on the burning frustration and fatigue which filled him. Then he was face to face with a thin angular calmness that was Gorman and in the moment of meeting he felt himself become a soldier again. His thoughts slowed and assembled themselves, his breathing eased, his pulse slackened its beat. He was filled with a shame which brought the blood to his cheeks in a sudden rush and he was thankful for the dirt and beard which hid his weakness from his friend. They went together to the top of the house, to the stripped bedroom, looking out onto the road which ran straight in at right angles to the one on which the house stood. The burned out Mark IV and the SP blocked the road 40 yards away from them. They were safe enough from an armoured attack but beyond the tanks where the road turned the three houses faced them. Every window in them was shattered and the walls showed holes where shots from Summer's Pierre had pierced them. As Blake explained the situation to Gorman, he looked at the faces of the other two men in the room. Summers and Woodley sat behind a table, well back in the centre of the room, a Pierre and an MG42 side by side in front of them, and their eyes were fixed on the three houses 70 yards away to the east. At any moment during the day, German infantry might erupt from inside or behind the houses and pour down the road towards the section post. Even heavily equipped men could cover 70 yards in 12 or 15 seconds. In general, the firing had died down round the perimeter edge, although shells and mortar bombs continued to land inside it. 
A machine gun duel was raging to the north, somewhere in the area held by the King's Own Scottish Borderers and the Recce Squadron, and to the south, by the river, the Lonsdale Force was heavily engaged. Elsewhere, a rare silence hung over the battlefield. The remnants of the division licked its wounds and waited for what was to follow, and any man who gave serious thought to the outcome knew that one determined attack by the enemy, pushed home with resolution, must break through at any point in the thinly held perimeter. Only Field Marshal Modell and his commanders knew why the attack did not come and had not come at any time during the past three days. The faces of the two men behind the table revealed little to a cursory glance, but as he looked closely at them, Blake became aware of the taut strain underlying the expressionless masks they wore. The stillness of their faces was the result of tight-range control. They were afraid that if they displayed, even for a moment, the fear and despair in their hearts or the exhaustion of their bodies, they would never again be able to get it under control. Blake wondered how long it would be before some man in the platoon cracked badly. He had come very near it himself, and at a time when he should have been at his strongest. Usually, added responsibility created its own increased stability. Gorman pulled at Blake's sleeve and drew him out into the passage. He spoke quickly but seriously, licking his lips, pausing frequently, and picking his words with care. I don't know what plans the old man has for counterattacks except in a general way, but I think it's time we detailed orders to be issued about every bloody post we have. It's obvious what the Germans are up to. They're confident. Absolutely cocksure Second Army aren't going to get over to us in force. That's why they haven't bothered to launch an expensive attack. They're going to shell us and bomb us and mortar us out of existence. They're going to keep on doing what they did to three platoon this morning on the other side of the hospital. They'll fetch tanks up close during the night and then shell and burn the houses over our heads. They're going to annihilate us in detail. We've got to know in advance exactly where to give ground and exactly where to hold, where we counterattack and with what, and where we let a position go and seal it off. And we've got to know in advance what we seal it off with. While Gorman spoke, Blake watched his face. The skinny sergeant was in deadly earnest. He had thought a lot about what he was saying. It was something which had absorbed him for hours. His whole approach to the tactical situation had become theoretical, and he stabbed with a thin finger as he made each point. As I see it, when they come, they'll come straight up this road. They've been sticking to roads all the time. They'll come at me and they'll come at Marsden. With us out of the way, there's just your chaps between them and Div HQ. How many men have you got? Four. Blake spoke abruptly. Gorman, alone with a few men in his section post, had succumbed to the disease common to isolation. He could see nothing beyond his own immediate surroundings. For him, the Battle of Arnhem had become centred round their platoon and his own section in particular. If we go, three platoon will have to launch an immediate counterattack to retake our positions. It's the only way to keep a body of troops between the Germans and the backs of the men on the other side of the perimeter. If it's only Marsden's position that goes, you could move your chaps up to my right and seal them off. What do you think? Blake looked down at his hands before replying. When he looked up again, he showed none of the concern he felt about Gorman's waning judgment. You may have a point, Frank. If I have to go to the old man before Bridgman gets back on his feet, I'll put it to him. In the meanwhile, you hang on here. Let one of these chaps sleep and one in the next house. you got a chap downstairs with a Bren, haven't you? Yes, Hardy. Well, you take turns with him. I don't know about you, but I'm just about on my bloody uppers. Somehow we've got to get all the rest we can. Blake left from the back of the house and moved to his left. As he passed a tumble-down shed in the garden, he heard the whine of a mortar bomb and dropped where he was. The bomb landed behind him towards company headquarters and was followed by another much nearer this time. Blake scrambled on his hands and knees into the shed and lay down behind the door. He peered through a crack and saw the great spouts of black earth which were flung up in the gardens as the bombs exploded. It looked as if they were in for a sustained mortar stonk. 
He looked quickly round the shed. Mortar bombs explode on impact, and provided he had some sort of cover, he was not in much danger, but the room was a bit too flimsy to be relied on. He pulled a trestle and some loose planks towards him and erected a makeshift cover for his back and head. He watched and listened for a few minutes. The bombs were falling much more frequently and it seemed certain the company positions were in for a battering. But with most of the men in the houses, they were not likely to have casualties except where fragments found their way through open windows. The mortaring would make movement pretty hazardous and that was all. The sergeant wondered how much this kind of mortaring was intended as psychological warfare. The enemy must know that nearly all the company posts were in houses. It might, of course, be the prelude to an attack. On the other hand, it might simply be half an hour's hate intended to subdue the spirit of the defenders. A bomb landed on the roof of the house behind where Blake lay, and he heard the clatter of broken tiles on the top of the shed. His stomach turned over sluggishly, and he screwed his eyes tightly together, cursing himself softly. Only a short time ago, he would have ignored the near hit. Perhaps it would not even have registered on a mind occupied with more important things. He took out a filthy handkerchief and wiped his face in the back of his neck. Then, with determined concentration, he set to work on his hands, paying particular attention to the wet web skin between his fingers. It was important that these parts were clean and dry. For a few seconds, he became completely lost in what he was doing, staring with fixed interest at the little balls of dirt which formed and rolled away under the gentle rubbing of his handkerchief. When he had finished, he put the handkerchief back in his smock pocket. The rest of his hands, black with grime, seemed unimportant. They were dry. It was the cloying, unclean wet of his sweat that must be eradicated. He thought about Gorman and his two houses, and his grandiose schemes for counterattacks. If Gorman's and Marsden's posts were overrun, three platoon would be concentrated in the backs of the houses they held and would face the Germans across the 40 yards of gardens. The perimeter on a front of 50 yards would have been contracted by the same 40 yards which separated the two platoons. Counterattacks in such circumstances were as practicable as attempting a battalion objective with a section. There was only one thing for the division to do, for the two and a half thousand men who remained out of the ten thousand who had landed, and that was to hang grimly on to every house and every slit trench they held, sealing off every loss as it occurred. There would be no counter-attacks. No matter how good their calibre, handfuls of exhausted, battered men with no artillery support and only occasional glimpses of friendly aircraft could not attack fresh troops who were supported by 88mm guns and tanks. The mortaring showed no sign of easing up. If he waited for it to lift, he might be stuck in the shed for hours. He was commanding the platoon. He ought to do something about it. He eased the door back and settled the Schmeisser on his shoulder. He waited for a lull and when it came he sprang to his feet and darted out of a shed. He was behind the cover of Marsden's house when a bullet fired from the air of the upper hospital whined yards behind him. He hurtled across the road and struck the door with his fist. There was a faint movement at a window to one side of him, a pause of a few seconds, and then the door opened and he found himself looking at Bridgman. He stepped quickly inside the little hallway and started to speak, but Bridgman cut him short. Where have you come from now? I've just left Gorman's section. Well, about 10 or 15 minutes ago. I got caught in the open by that mortar stonk. I had to take cover. Have you been near company headquarters? No, not yet. I was going up there after I'd seen Marsden. Bridgman turned and started to make his way up the stairs, talking over his shoulder as he went. Blake followed him. Come and have a look at this. I think the old man's in trouble. It's hard to pick out his positions in the smoke, but there are houses burning at the crossroads. They reached the top of the house and climbed a makeshift ladder into the attic. Bridgman guided Blake across the rafters to a hole in the tiled roof, and the sergeant looked out to the north. The whole area round the company headquarters position was a mass of billowing smoke, and at first Blake thought that all their houses were on fire, but as he watched, the heavy wind from the northeast dropped and the smoke retreated. 
Now he could see flames rising above the rooftops, a half circle of fire. As he strained his eyes, the wind blew again and the smoke blotted out the positions. He stepped back from the hole in the roof. It looks like the house is on the other side of the crossroads. What do you think, sir? Is there anything we can do? Bridgman took the position Blake had left and looked out. He could go and find out for himself. He could get back to the wireless set. Or he could send someone else. He felt so tired that it didn't seem to matter what he did. Ben's dream was overrated, or else it took some time to work. Brogan had pressed it on him when he had insisted on leaving the aid post, but it didn't seem to have had any effect. Without speaking, he moved back and made his way down the ladder with Blake behind him. They went into one of the bedrooms and found Marsden bandaging Laverty's upper arm. The corporal looked up as they came through the door, the movement his head quick and decisive. They sniped Paddy and then got knocked out by their own tank. It's a proper cock-up down this road, but I think it helps us more than it does them. Marsden grinned viciously and moved from Laverty till he was flattened against the wall, looking down the road. Bridgman closed up behind him and peered over his shoulder. Two houses, 30 yards down the opposite side of the road, were burning. What happened? Jerry got into those houses. I don't know when. We didn't see them. Paddy spotted movement about half an hour ago. He was waiting for a decent shot at them when a tank came up, and he must have showed himself to the bastards in those houses. They fired at him and hit him in the arm. The tank crew must have spotted their movement and thought it was us. They put four phosphorus shells into them and then stuffed off. Cassidy got two of them as they came out. Bridgman sat down on the bed and only just stopped himself from burying his head in his hands. Marston was watching him from the window and Blake from the door. Cassidy had not moved from where he crouched behind a breastwork of furniture and mattresses. Looking at the German Jew's face, Bridgman's mind slid away from the immediate problems. For some reason he could not explain, Cassidy had always annoyed him, made him feel in some way uncomfortable. Marsden had the same effect on him, although to a lesser extent. Both were good soldiers, but whereas Marsden betrayed his critical irritation at what he considered was anything less than the maximum effort, Cassidy never revealed what he was thinking, but time and again acted on his own initiative in ways which showed that he had his own ideas about the conduct of war, and that these ideas were not the same as those of the majority. Cassidy was almost too good to be true, the perfect private soldier, and at the back of Bridgman's mind lurked the suspicion that Cassidy would also have made the perfect platoon commander. Bridgman shook himself to his feet. He would go to headquarters himself, if for no other reason than that he would fall asleep if he remained in one place. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. 
He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts.